word. And tonight as we study the scriptures, we pray, Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts in a special way. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, his love for the Jews, but then his ministry among the Gentiles. Because we today are members of your kingdom, Lord, because of Paul's journeys to the Gentiles. Thank you that we can be saved by faith and faith alone, faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to worship him tonight and pledge our hearts and lives to him afresh. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A tourist traveling through southern Europe visited a cathedral that had a human skull on display. The tour guide claimed that this skull was that of the Apostle Paul. Well, the next day, the same tourist was with the same tour guide, but they were in a neighboring city. They were in another cathedral. And the tourist was again shown a skull that was purported to be that of the Apostle Paul. Well, the tourist, you know, he was a little dumbfounded. And he said to the guide, he said, wait a minute. You've shown us two skulls and you, you say they both belong to the Apostle Paul. Which is the real skull? The guide answered him. He said, both are. The skull you saw yesterday belonged to the Apostle Paul when he was a young man. And the skull you saw today belonged to the Apostle Paul when he was an old man. Supposed to be a joke. Apparently, those two cities had a special attachment to the Apostle Paul. Likewise, there were hundreds of cities all across Galatia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece that could lay a special claim to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He was not a man who let moss grow under his feet, he was always on the move, always adventurous always sharing the gospel and starting new churches. And in Acts chapter 20, we begin picking up with Paul on his third missionary journey. He has traveled now by land from Antioch in Syria through Galatia, on through Asia Minor to Ephesus. Remember, Paul had been in Ephesus for two years before departing from Macedonia and Greece. I'm sure that he returned to the towns that he had visited earlier. He visited Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth. In verse 6, he returns now by ship to Asia Minor, and he docks in the port of Troas. Verse 7 reads, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, notice the early Christians met to worship on the first day of the week. And that's significant. Recall for the prior 1,500 years, God's people, the Jews, have worshipped on what day of the week? On the last day of the week, on Saturday. Why the change now from Saturday to Sunday? Something dramatic must have occurred to change such a time-honored, such a God-given tradition. And that is exactly what had happened. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And so the church's weekly meeting now became the first day of the week, And was always a celebration of the resurrection. Paul ended up in Troas on a Sunday. And knowing that he was scheduled to leave the next day. He decides to feed the believers the whole enchilada in a single sermon. Verse 7 tells us. He continued his message until midnight. Church members today have a hard time if you go over half an hour. But imagine. If they started around 6.30 like we do, 
His sermon must have been a five and a half hour sermon. I'm not even sure the Apostle Paul could hold your attention for that long. Notice too, the early Christians met on Sunday night, apparently, rather than Sunday morning. In the Roman Empire, Sunday was a work day. They came to church after work. This is why verse 8 tells us, There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And because of all of these candles burning, apparently there was a thick smoke, kind of a fog in the room, hanging in the air. A man named Eutychus, he went to the windowsill, apparently to get some fresh air. But a drowsiness overcame him. Eutychus dozes off, and he falls three stories to the ground below. Now don't you laugh at Eutychus. Because there's not a person in this room that hasn't been hit by the Eutychus syndrome at some time in your life. It reminds me of the man who fell asleep in church. The pastor shouted out to the usher. He said, wake that man up. The usher shouted back, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. (laughs) And that's exactly what Paul did. You know, three floors is a pretty good fall. Verse 9 says, Eutychus was taken up dead. But Paul is a responsible preacher. He who he puts to sleep, he also wakes up. And in verse 10, we're told that Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. That's not clear, really, whether he raised Eutychus from the dead, or rather, whether he merely helped him regain consciousness. We don't know. It could have been one or the other. But verse 12 says, They brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted, I bet. They rejoiced. Don't ignore the lessons here. Those who fall asleep spiritually. Those who doze off to the things of God. Those who begin to ignore the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Those who don't spend time in the Word and in prayer. Those who doze off spiritually. They set themselves up for a spiritual fall. Be alert. Be on fire. Be excited about the things of God. Don't doze off. And when you see a brother or sister in Christ who has taken a fall, you be like Paul. You be the first one down the stairs to go to them and to bring them up alive again. Paul continues to travel down the coast from Troas. Verse 16 says that he's in a hurry. His goal is to return to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Paul knows that he has many friends in Ephesus. And if he were to return to the city, he would have to stay a while. But he wants to spend some time. He has to make some points to the elders of the church. And so he arranges a meeting with the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus. Miletus was 28 miles south of Ephesus. And there Paul addresses the elders of Ephesus for what will be the very last time. Paul reminds the Ephesians of his ministry among them. He had supported himself. He had never been a burden to them. He had practiced what he preached. He had poured out his heart in his teaching. Even when it had angered the Jews, Paul had never watered down the truth. In verse 21, he sums up his message. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Paul says in verse 22 that the Holy Spirit had warned on numerous occasions that chains and tribulations awaited him in Jerusalem. Yet he says he is bound in the Spirit to go. 
He says, says in verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Understand, Paul's personal concerns were not the priorities of his life. His goal was to complete the ministry that God had given him. He knows here that he'll never see these friends again. In verse 25, he says that he has no regrets over the time that he had spent with them in Ephesus. He had done his duty. Verse 27 says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Note that Paul taught the whole Bible. Not part and parcel. Not a little here and a little there. You know, a lot of people have a Dalmatian theology. They have a little bit here and a little bit there, a spot here, a spot there. Not Paul. He declared the whole counsel of God. Pastors who preach only their little pet passages, only their favorite themes, are not fulfilling their responsibility. A pastor's job is to preach the whole Bible. As Paul put it, the whole counsel of God. I've got a little poem that's a favorite of mine. I suppose I knew my Bible, reading piecemeal, hit or miss. Now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis. Certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, 12th of Romans, 1st of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the word. But I found a thorough reading was a different thing to do. And the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. You who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look, try a worthier procedure, try a broad and steadier view. You will kneel in very rapture when you teach the Bible through. A.W. Tozer once said, it takes nothing less than a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Paul understood that. Paul also tells the elders or the shepherds there to oversee the flock of God. You know, the sheep belong to Jesus. They've been purchased with a precious price, with his own blood. Paul warns that false prophets, or as he calls them, savage wolves, will come from two directions. They'll arise from within the church. They'll come from without the church. And an elder's job is to make sure that the flock is both well-grazed and also well-guarded, both well-fed and well-led. Verse 35 contains what we call the supreme beatitude. It's a quote from Jesus that's found nowhere else in Scripture, but right here. We don't know where Paul got it. But Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Notice it doesn't just promise a blessing. It promises more blessing. That's why it's called the supreme beatitude. If you want to be more blessed, be a giver rather than a receiver. Paul is leaving Ephesus for the last time. An emotional farewell takes place on the seashore. The next time they will see each other will be in heaven. In Acts chapter 21, Paul continues his journey to Jerusalem. He travels port to port down the west coast of Turkey until he finds a ship that's headed for Phoenicia. In verse 3, Paul sails 400 miles. It's a Mediterranean cruise on a cargo ship. When he lands in Tyre, he spends seven days with the believers in the city. And they repeat the warning, the message that Paul has received from others, not to go up to Jerusalem. When Paul arrives in Caesarea, 
He spends a few days at Philip's house. Do you remember Philip? He was one of the original deacons. One of the very first members of the church in Jerusalem. It shows such mercy and such grace on his part to receive Paul into his house. Probably the last time he had seen Paul was when Paul was Saul raging and spewing threats and curses for the church. But apparently a beautiful forgiveness had taken place. Paul spends a few days at Philip's house and there a prophet by the name of Agabus visits Paul. And he acts out a living parable similar to the Old Testament prophets. He takes the apostle's belt and with it binds his own hands and feet. And then Agabus tells him in verse 11. Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Notice Paul's reply in verse 13. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What commitment. He was willing to lay down his life for his Lord. Recently, the king of Morocco paid a visit to Washington, D.C. And an army of Secret Service agents turned out to protect protect his vast delegation. It seems the king of Morocco travels with a huge entourage, including his 12 wives. There are countless servants, and there is even the king's own organ donor who travels with him. Can you believe it? The king has a personal organ donor. He's a perfect match. If ever he needs a transplanted heart or liver or kidney, the donor is immediately available. You know, Paul had that same attitude toward Jesus. He was Jesus' personal organ donor. His hands, his feet, his heart, his mind, it all belonged to Jesus Christ. He was ready to die if need be for the sake of Christ. But here's the question. I've pondered this for many years. Since it was the Holy Spirit warning Paul here not to go to Jerusalem, was it then a sin for him to ignore all of these repeated cautions and press on anyway? And the answer I've come to, I still don't know. (laughs) Whether Paul's insistence to go to Jerusalem was a sin or not, I'm not sure. It could have been a sin. It could have been an act of courage. It definitely was an act of courage. But you know, love covers a multitude of sins. And it was his love for the Jews and his desire to see them saved that caused him to throw caution to the wind, to ignore the warnings, and to go anyway. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he never stopped loving his Jewish brethren. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, He visits James and the elders of the church. While on his missionary journeys, Paul had refused to force the law on the Gentiles. Paul was adamant the law should never be made a requirement for righteousness. But a Jew still could feel free to be Jewish. A Jew could still observe the rituals of the law if he wanted to, just out of his love and respect for the law. And James suggested that Paul show the Jews... His own love and respect for the law by taking a voluntary vow. James was hoping that Paul's participation in a Jewish ritual would sort of diffuse the anger that he had stirred up among the Jews in Jerusalem. And it would, it would sort of 
kind of ease their acceptance of him. The plan, though, backfires. When Paul enters the temple to fulfill his vow, his appearance triggers a riot. A mob grabs Paul, starts to drag him out of the temple to stone him. The Roman soldiers stationed in the temple, they rush in to restore order. And the soldiers save Paul from the pack by arresting him. They carry him back to the temple precinct, the fortress of Antonio, for protection. Now, if I had been Paul, I would have breathed a sigh of relief. Whew, I'm out of that. And I just avoided a lynching. Good for me. I've had a good day. I'd be ready for a quiet sale, but not Paul. No matter the situation, Paul refused to lose sight of his purpose. As he's being taken up the steps, away from this angry mob, he turns and he asks the captain of the guard if he can preach to the people who have just tried to kill him. Can you imagine? You know, too often, I think we lose our composure in the midst of a chaotic situation. Suddenly, our own survival takes precedent over God's calling. We forget why we were there. We forget what God was doing. We forget what God had sent us to do. And we end up just sort of dog paddling, trying to survive. We need to be like Paul. We need to be faithful under fire. We need to never let go of the purpose and calling God has placed on our life, no matter the situation. Throughout Acts 22, Paul is perched on the steps of the temple stockade. He is preaching to the Jews. He has waited a lifetime for this opportunity. And now that it's come, it's interesting how he handles it. Rather than debate doctrine, rather than to focus on philosophy, rather than even to quote scripture, he tells the Jews what happened to him. He recounts his own personal testimony. You know, you may say, I can't be a witness for Christ. I don't know the doctrine. I can't argue apologetics. You know, I don't know my Bible that well. Well, do you have an experience? Do you have an experience with Jesus? Do you have a testimony? You can share your testimony. That's what Paul did. He had waited his whole life for this moment. And he gets up and he shares his testimony. Guys, never underestimate the power of a changed life. You know, the skeptic can argue theology. They can argue doctrine, but they can't argue with your testimony. It's been said, a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Share your testimony. Let the Holy Spirit do His work. The road to Damascus was Paul's testimony. It became his highway to heaven. Paul had taken orders from the chief priest in Jerusalem, but now he was taking orders from the high priest in heaven. After his conversion, Jesus spoke to Paul again. He was to leave Jerusalem, verse 21. Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. <coughs> but the moment he mentions the word Gentiles, the riot erupts all over again. That was the issue among the Jews. These prejudiced Jews refused to accept the sufficiency of the work of Christ. That the Gentiles could be saved by God's grace. Grace and faith alone. And Paul never got to finish his sermon. The Romans order Paul inside the compound to get to the bottom of the disturbance. They threaten him with a scourging. But in verse 28, Paul invokes his Roman citizenship. 
He says, is it, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? You see, Roman citizens had special rights. And one was the right to a fair trial. It was unlawful for them to scourge him without giving him a trial first. I think that's an important point. Paul used his Roman citizenship to hear escape some pain and torture. Understand, Paul suffered much for the sake of Christ. But a martyr is not a masochist. A martyr suffers because he has to, not because he wants to. You know, saints are often called to suffer. But suffering in and of itself never makes a saint. When it comes to avoiding persecution, a little shrewdness will go a long way. And Paul uses it here. In Acts chapter 23, Paul slugs it out with the Sanhedrin. Of which, remember, he was once a member. These were his, his former peers, his, his pals, so to speak. Imagine a converted Paul now returning and witnessing to his old friends. First, he takes a jab at their pride. In verse 1, he addresses them, Men and brethren, rather than the customary title, rulers of the people. In other words, Paul places himself on their level. There are no hierarchies in the kingdom of God is the point he's trying to make. Second, Paul throws a left hook at their legalism. He claims a clean conscience. You know, that's something that the law can never produce. Legalism yields a nagging feeling that there's still more to be done. When you're living under the law, you're never content. You're never satisfied. Your conscience is never clean. You've never done enough. To really truly be pleasing to God. Paul's conscience had been permanently cleaned and cleansed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And thus he could lay claim to a clean conscience. Understand here, Paul realizes quickly he's in a no-win situation. And so he manipulates his adversaries. At the time, Judaism was a two-party system. And Paul brings up the major source of their division the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed that our corruptible bodies would one day live again. The Sadducees didn't. When you're dead, you're dead. And of course, that's why they were sad, you see. Paul's strategy here causes these Jews to fight against each other. He brings up the resurrection. They can't decide, you know, which is right. Suddenly the Pharisees begin to side with Paul. And it says they almost pulled him apart. As they were fighting over him. In the end, Paul remains in Roman custody. Understand, Paul had finally preached to the Jews. But no one had listened. It wasn't the result that he had hoped to achieve, certainly. And you know, it's good for us to remember that sometimes people are not going to listen to our testimony. Sometimes we're going to witness to deaf ears. It's also good to remember that you're not rewarded on commission. Jesus has no commissioned sales agents. We're evaluated as witnesses, not on how we, many deals we close, but on how many calls we make. Are we faithful to make the calls? It's the Lord who's responsible for the results. Our responsibility is just to make the calls. And Paul was faithful to do that. The night after his trial, we're told in chapter 23, verse 11, The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also bear witness at Rome. Jesus is faithful to encourage discouraged witnesses. He reminds Paul that Jerusalem is not the end of the road. The road will lead to Rome. In Acts 23, Paul receives a divine prophecy to comfort him and some divine providence to protect him. Forty Jews decide that they are going to fast until Paul is dead. They must have really hated their nemesis to give up matzo balls and lamb chops until he was dead. These Jews actually planned an ambush. But by an act of God, a providential act, Paul's nephew hears of the plot and he reports it to the Romans. Later that night, around 9 p.m., just after nightfall, they place Paul under heavy guard. And under the cover of darkness, they smuggle him to the city of Caesarea. Paul gets moved from the Jewish capital of the area, Jerusalem, to the Gentile capital of Caesarea. Paul is handed over to the Roman governor of the region, a man by the name of Felix, along with a letter that explains the charges against him. The Roman soldiers in Jerusalem are glad to get Paul off their hands. They don't want any more riots. But as always, Paul remains in the hands of God. In Acts chapter 24, the high priest comes up from Jerusalem to Caesarea with his high-priced lawyer. The man's name was Tertullius. Tertullus, the Johnny Cochran. The Jewish Johnny Cochran. We don't talk, we just walk, was his motto. But here, Tertullus becomes a prosecutor. If the Jews can't kill Paul in the temple, they'll condemn him in the courts. In verse 3, Tertullus addresses the governor, Most noble Felix. And yet history testifies that Felix was anything but noble. The Roman historian Tacitus said that Felix had the power of a king and the mind of a slave. Read chapter 24, verses 2, 3, and 4, and you'll see that Tertullus' strategy was flattery. It almost turns your stomach. To win the case, he first tries to win the judge's favor. Tertullus then goes to name-calling. He calls Paul a plague, a creator of dissension, a ringleader. It must have reminded Paul of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Finally, in verse 10, Paul is given the opportunity to defend himself. He reminds Governor Felix that Christianity was not a departure from Judaism. That Paul worshipped the Hebrew God. He followed the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus came not to undermine the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Felix ends up placing Paul under house arrest. And he holds him for two years. It was probably during that two years that Luke did his research. To write the gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. Felix might have been inclined to release Paul. But he kept him under wraps for a number of reasons. First, he wanted to hear more of the gospel, we're told. Second, he hoped for a bribe from Paul. Good old Felix, that corrupt guy. And then third, he wanted to appease the Jews. 
Verse 25 tells us that Paul's presentation of the gospel, it included three ingredients. I think this is important. It included talk about the righteousness of God or a right standing with God. It included talk about personal victory over sin. And it included talk about the future judgment. I think every presentation of the gospel needs to include those three things. A right standing with God, personal victory over sin, and avoiding the future judgment. Leave out any of those three doctrines and your doctrine is deficient. Despite the fact that Felix was looking for a bribe, when you read Acts 24, it seems that Felix was genuinely intrigued with Christianity. He truly wanted to hear more. Sadly, though, Felix was content to just tiptoe around the truth. He was never really willing to make a stand. Verse 25 says he looked for a convenient time. A convenient time to make a commitment to Jesus. Guys, there is no such thing as a convenient time. But the crucial time is right now. In Acts chapter 25, the Jews are still out to murder Paul. Even after two years, they still want him dead. And when Felix is replaced by Festus, formerly of Gunsmoke, (laughs) when he's replaced by Festus as the Roman governor, the Jews see it as a new opportunity to jumpstart their case against Paul. Paul realizes that he has become a political football. He's just being passed around now from one Roman governor to another. He's just being a football played to appease the Jews. He finally gets tired of the game. And he decides to force the Romans to punt. And here in chapter 25, verse 11, Paul exercises his right again as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to the Caesar. Festus has no other alternative. He says in verse 12, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Back in chapter 23, verse 11, you remember the Lord Jesus had comforted Paul the night after he had been arrested by telling him that he would be a witness in Rome. Here the Lord arranges an all-expense-paid trip to Rome. As a guest of the Roman government. You know, it was another example of God delivering on His promise, but not in the way we would have expected. Have you found that to be the case in your life? God fulfills all His promises, but not always in the way we expect Him to. This was the case here. God fulfills His promises His way, not necessarily our way. Festus, though, he has a problem. For two years, he's kept Paul in prison. And really for no real reason. Now he's sending him to Caesar with no substantial charges. Festus, you see, is the new kid on the block. He's new to the governorship. So he invites Mr. and Mrs. Herod Agrippa to hear Paul's defense. They've been around a while. And they'll have a greater sensitivity to Jewish matters. They'll help Festus formalize charges that he can send with Paul to Caesar. And Festus turns this defense, this interview, into a social extravaganza. He probably hosted the event in the amphitheater there on the beach of Caesarea. Paul was kept in the dark dungeon below while the bleachers filled up with VIPs and dignitaries. 
Suddenly, Paul was thrust out into center stage, into the bright, blinding sunlight. What an intimidating situation to be standing there. Your eyes trying to adjust. People laughing and sneering and mocking at you. But I love the first words that come out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. Chapter 26, verse 2, he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. In other words, I'm happy to be here, King. There was joy in his heart. Make yourself comfortable now. I'm going to set the record straight. Paul refuses to be intimidated by the environment, by the spectators, by the situation, by the thing that would intimidate you and me. And in the rest of Acts chapter 26, Paul serves up a sermon to the king and his court. Again, Paul recounts his testimony. It's interesting. Paul's most compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was his own experience. A blinding light opened his eyes. Jesus became his Lord. And Paul was sent out to open the eyes of others. In verses 22 and 23, Paul tells King Agrippa that what he had preached was nothing new. Both Moses and the prophets had predicted that the Messiah would come and suffer and die and then be raised from the dead. He would eventually proclaim light to both Jew and Gentile. Again, it was the mention of the resurrection that provoked an interruption in his message. You see, the Romans were like the Sadducees. To them, the idea of a resurrection was preposterous. And in verse 24, notice Festus shouts at Paul. I'm not going to shout myself. But he shouted, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. In other words, Paul, you've completely flipped, man. You've wigged out. You've gone nuts. You're not playing with a full deck anymore. But Paul refuses to be festered by Festus. He senses that God has a grip on King Agrippa's heart. That's who he goes for, King Agrippa. And he doesn't want the king to slip away from this grip God has upon him. And in chapter 26, he challenges the king. He says, for the king, before whom I speak freely, he knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Agrippa subscribed to the Jerusalem Post. He had read the newspaper the day that it was reported that Jesus rose from the dead. He'd been around when Jesus was crucified and three days later rose triumphantly. Agrippa knew the truth better than anyone. (coughs) Agrippa understood that the gospel of Jesus was not some mystery religion. Rather, it was a fact of history irrefutable by the eyewitnesses that saw it. Paul knows that Agrippa is close to conversion. And in verse 27, he gets aggressive. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And notice he doesn't even give him time to answer. He says, I know that you believe. And look at Agrippa's response. Verse 28, Acts chapter 26, verse 28, is one of the saddest statements in the whole Bible. Agrippa says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me. 
to become a Christian. I wonder how many of hell's inhabitants will make that exact same statement. I was almost persuaded to become a Christian. As the old saying goes, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Almost isn't enough when it comes to faith in Jesus. The almost will be the left out. They say in an average year, 4.6 million people will take their vacation on a cruise ship. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever been on a cruise? You know the old saying, cruises are for the overfed and the almost dead? (laughs) Well, apparently that's no longer true. Because more and more people are taking cruises. Everybody wants to take a cruise, and I would imagine especially a cruise to Rome. Well, in Acts chapter 27, Paul and his pals get that opportunity. They board a boat for Rome, but not as a partier, but as prisoners. This is a cruise to refuse. This is a cruise for the blues. Paul is one of several prisoners entrusted to a centurion named Julius. Now, after mid-September, sailing on the Mediterranean became dangerous. By mid-November, it was prohibited. The ship that carried Paul to the port of Fair Havens on the island of Crete left sometime in mid-October. That meant that the seas were becoming treacherous. In verse 10, Paul warns the ship's captain not to take, excuse me, the 45-mile voyage up the coast of Crete to the tiny uh, Hamlet of Phoenix where they wanted to spend the winter. He says, this is not a good idea. Let's stay here in Fair Havens. But hey, Phoenix was a more luxurious layover. It had more things to do. And so they refused to heed Paul's warning. And what happened, as we said this morning, A 45-mile trip turned into a 645-mile detour. What they thought they would do in one day turns into two weeks without ever seeing a spot of land. Verse 11 sums it up. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. You know, guys, one of the keys in life learning who to listen to and who not to listen to. I should have listened to Paul. After weeks of drifting in the midst of this turbulent storm, under cloudy skies, unable to navigate, after tossing the cargo all overboard just to stay afloat, nevertheless, all hope was lost. And Paul addresses the crew. And he can't help indulging in a little, I told you so. He says in verse 21, Men, you should have listened to me. And then he says in verse 23, There stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong. I love those words. Notice how he addresses God. To the God whom I belong. You know, I think this is critical. Do you sense, do you know in your heart that you belong to God? Do you see yourself as a child of God? Do you see yourself as purchased with the blood of Jesus? Can you say tonight, I am serving the God to whom I belong? I think that's critical. 
Because, guys, I'll tell you, if you know who owns you, you won't be manipulated by those who don't. But when Paul offers encouragement, the, the people begin to listen to him. They should have listened to him at the beginning. Now they're listening to him at the end. And Paul reports to them that an angel has assured him that though the ship would sink, all its passengers would be preserved with one condition. As long as the men remained in the boat, they would be saved. And of course, as we mentioned this morning, the lesson is obvious. Life is like a storm-tossed sea. Life can get rough. The safe place is in Christ Jesus, in the center of His will. And we will make it to the heavenly shore if we stay in the boat. It's interesting. Courage is contagious. Paul's peace of mind in uncertain circumstances. It inspired the others on the ship. And as the ship broke apart in the churning surf, faith began to build in the heart of those who had believed in God's word. Both God's providence and the broken boards from the ship were what rescued the crew and the 276 passengers. And you know the same is true for us. The broken boards of our past, the shrapnel from the storm, the lessons that we learned, the pain that we endured, the hope that was assured is what God uses us to float through today's trials and keep our head above water today. Stay in the boat. And God will provide you the deliverance that you need. Now the shipwreck crew, they all make it to shore. And they soon discover that they have been marooned on the island of Malta. Just off the coast of Sicily. Since it was rainy and cold, the men of Malta built the survivors a fire. And they made them welcome. And as usual, the Apostle Paul was busy serving. He was out collecting firewood as the fangs of a poisonous viper penetrated his hand. Paul shakes the viper off his hand and shakes the snake off into the fire. Now here's another lesson for us. As we serve the Lord, as you serve the Lord, you're going to find that there'll be some snakes in the wood. Trust me, there will be. And those snakes will try to take a bite out of your joy. They'll try to poison your attitude toward your ministry. Satan is the serpent who loves to poison our service for God. But notice how Paul handles the snake bite. He just shakes it off and continues to serve. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't grab hold of his hand. He doesn't suddenly become fixated on the hurt. He doesn't suddenly want to try to make himself feel better. He doesn't even do what John Wayne would have done. Pull out a knife. Slice open the wound. Start to suck out the poison. He doesn't do any of those things. Guys, the best way to handle this type of attack is to just shake it off and carry on. Yes, the bite hurt. Yes, there was some initial pain. But if Paul had sat down from his service to nurse the wound, he would have played right into Satan's hands. That's what Satan wanted him to do. Instead, Paul just shook it off 
and kept serving the Lord. The bite wasn't as bad as he thought it was. Jesus was able to neutralize the poison. It would be no big deal if he just shook it off and carried on. You remember that the next time you encounter a snake in the wood. Paul's miraculous survival, it surprises the natives. And they assume that he is some kind of God. But Paul quickly sets the record straight. He preaches Jesus to them. And there are many people who are healed. Remember Jesus' words back in Mark chapter 16 when he said, These signs will follow those who believe. They will take up serpents and it will by no means hurt them. Hey, hey, Jesus never meant for believers to deliberately pick up and handle cottonmouths and copperheads. Snake handlers, that was never his intention. But you see, he knew that the Great Commission would carry his disciples into bush and into jungle. And he promised his witnesses special protection along the way. Even if a snake bites you, it won't harm you. That was Paul's promise that he held on to when he shook it off and carried on. After three months on Malta, Paul hitches a ride to Rome. And there he spends two years under house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar Nero. During that time, interestingly, he wrote four letters. Three to churches. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, and to the Colossians. And he also wrote a personal letter to his friend Philemon. In these four books because of the situation, are now known as the prison epistles. While in Rome, Paul was able to fellowship with friends. He was able to meet with the Jews, and he was able and willing to witness to anyone who would listen to him. Tradition tells us that Paul eventually did appear before Emperor Nero. And before this man, he shared his faith. After a brief release, he was taken prisoner a second time. And during Paul's final imprisonment, he penned his second letter to Timothy in his letter to Titus. Paul eventually was beheaded for his allegiance to Jesus Christ somewhere around the year of 65 A.D. What an irony it was. The man who had orchestrated and oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen became a martyr for Jesus Christ himself. Over the years... Folks have criticized Luke for ending this book so abruptly. But remember the theme of Acts is not the life of Paul, but the spread of the gospel. Christianity began on the edge of the empire, in a faraway province, and on the outskirts of the Roman world, a little place known as Judea. But in less than three decades, it had worked its way from Jerusalem in Judea, and Samaria, all the way to the heart and capital of the empire, the city of Rome. Luke could have ended Acts by writing, We've come a long way, baby. And yet, we still have a long way to go. I don't know about you, but I still know people who've yet to give their life to Jesus. It's been said... Every generation of Christians is responsible for reaching their own generation of unbelievers. You see, Jesus wants to continue His acts through us. Chapter 29 is your life. It's my life. 
It's the life of the church today. God wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to aggressively carry the gospel to our worlds. In one sense, the book of Acts carries on. The Holy Spirit continues to act through you and me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the journeys of the early church. We thank you for the power we see in their witness. And Lord, help us to remember that we can have that same power ourselves. Fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit. Help us be sold out for Jesus Christ. Lord, help us all become personal organ donors for our Lord Jesus. Here, Lord Jesus, take my mind, take my heart, take my hands, take my feet, take my muscles, take my legs, take every part of me, and use it, Lord, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.